Well, let's turn to our source of hope this morning, and that is the Word of God. And I want to uh, look this morning with you at a very familiar passage of Scripture. Uh, It's Psalm 19. And uh, as we've been going through lots of transitions here as a church, and particularly moving in uh, to this new facility, going back to one service, all being together, uh, seeing uh, so many new faces uh, in, our, in our church family uh, over the last few months, even years. Uh, I've, I've, I'm feeling nostalgic, I'm feeling historical, uh, feeling like we need to go back to some of the foundational uh, texts, foundational messages, things that really define us as a church. Uh, the lest we lose sight of, of who we are and what God has called us to be and to do, uh, I thought it would be important for us to, to go back to Psalm 19 and particularly verses 7 through 11, because this really is why uh, there's a sign out front that says Lakeside Bible Church. Uh, This is why uh, we encourage you to be in the Word on a daily basis, having a quiet time, reading and studying God's Word. That's why we, uh, this is why we have Bible studies uh, here at the church for men, for women, for children, for youth, um, in homes, in our small groups. It's, it's why uh, we do what we do, because we are absolutely convinced that God uses His Word to change lives. And so we're committed to this book, and Psalm 19 uh, expresses this um, better than anywhere else I know. Uh, Psalm 19, verse 7, David writes this, "...the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul." The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned in keeping them there is great reward. Father, we thank you for uh, the opportunity to look into your word once again this morning. And we come before this text with great anticipation as to what your spirit is going to teach us, as to what your spirit is going to remind us of and stir us up by way of reminder, and how the spirit of God is going to apply this passage in new and fresh ways today for where we're at in our lives even now. And so we pray that you'd be honored and glorified as we seek to exalt you by exalting your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I want everybody to take your Bible and hold it up. Go ahead, take your Bible, hold it up. Some of you guys got bigger Bibles than you can handle, apparently, right? Do you realize, and some of you are holding your phones up, I see that now, right? However form you have, right, the Word of God, do you realize that what you're holding in your hand is the most valuable possession you will ever own? That this book uh, is more, nothing is more indispensable to your life than the book that you have in your hand. You can put it down now. It's right up there with air and water and food, and shelter, 
You could put the Bible in the category of the essentials, the, the basic necessities of life. It's absolutely necessary. It's extremely important. Listen to what one anonymous writer, how he described the essential critical nature of God's Word. This was a, a plaque found in the wall of a pastor's study. It said this, This book contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrine is holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, heaven is opened, the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. (coughs) It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth and health to the soul and a river of pleasure. It is given to you here in this life, will be opened at the judgment, and is established forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and condemns all who trifle with its contents. I think this is an excellent description of the multifaceted ministry and comprehensive nature of God's Word. It, it contains everything we need to know to live a life that is pleasing to God. I think it's interesting that Psalm 119, which is the longest chapter in the Bible, is all about the Bible. It's really meditations on the wonders of God's Word in all 176 verses mentions something about the Word of God, and it's composed in in the form of an acrostic uh, with the 22 sections of that psalm corresponding with the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. It's as if the the psalmist was saying that the Bible is is comprehensive from A to Z. It, It covers all the bases. Well, here in Psalm 19... In, in just a, a, a few words, really just five verses, David uh, very eloquently and, and concisely described the all-encompassing nature or character of the Word of God. And like a, a master poet, he threw together uh, these descriptive titles and adjectives in, a, in an attempt to put, put words, put into words the, the wonderful characteristics and benefits of the, of the written revelation of God. And if you were to break up this psalm as a whole, it really breaks up into two sections, verses 1 through 6, talk about the the works of God, and verses 7 through 11 talk about the words of God. And so you have both the general general revelation of God through creation in verses 1 through 6, and then you have the special revelation of God through the canon in verses 7 through 11. And so I just want to focus this morning briefly with you on, on, on the canon aspect of this psalm or the, the Word of God aspect of this psalm. And, and I want you to see here in these verses how David strung together six statements describing the Scriptures that should inspire three responses to God's Word. Six statements describing the Scriptures that should inspire three responses to God's Word. And each of these 
six statements includes three elements, and I want you to notice them as we go through. There's a, a name for the Word of God. There's a characteristic of the Word of God. And then there's a benefit or an effect of the Word of God. And so be looking for six names, six characteristics, and six benefits or effect, effects of the Word of God. And together they form a, a, a simple summary of what the Bible is and what the Bible does. The first statement is simply this. The Bible is perfect and produces conversion. The Bible is perfect and produces conversion. Notice verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. <clears throat> that expression there, the law of the Lord, that is the general Hebrew, Hebrew word for the scriptures. It's the word Torah or Torah. It means instruction. It means direction. It means teaching. This is a, a comprehensive term for, for all of God's revealed will. And so it, it tells us what we should believe, our creed. It, it tells us who we should be, our character. And then it also tells us what we should do, our conduct. And so the law of the Lord is perfect. It's perfect. It's whole. It's complete. It's sufficient. It, it completely covers every aspect of life. If we need something, it's going to be in the Bible. It's not deficient in any way. And so consequently, the Bible doesn't need to be changed. It doesn't need to be supplemented. It doesn't be integrated with anything else. It's totally sufficient in and of itself. And that's why we're forbidden in the Bible to not add anything to it or take anything away from it or alter it in any way. Why? Because it's perfect just the way it is. There's no need for additional revelations or visions or words from the Lord. And so instead of looking for something more from God, we, we should f- focus on obeying what we already have. I mean, I don't know about you. I don't need any more revelation. I got enough to deal with right here. I'm having a hard time putting all this into practice. Don't give me any more. And when we obey the scriptures, it'll totally transform our lives. Notice what it says. That the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Restoring the soul. Literally, that word means to convert, to revive, to give new life. In other words, the Word of God has the power to completely change a person's life from the inside out. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In other words, no matter what your life is like, regardless of how bad your sins are or how big your problems are, the Bible is able to fix you. It's able to convert you to revive you, to renovate you, to rebuild your life. I think the idea here is, is, is really at the, at the bottom line is regeneration. 1 Peter 1.23 says that you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. Listen, if you're saved here this morning, you got saved through the word of God. You can't get saved any other way than through hearing the truth about Jesus Christ in God's word. Someone said this about the sufficiency of, of, of Scripture. He said, Scripture is so powerful and comprehensive that it can convert or transform the entire person, changing someone into precisely the person God wants them to be. God's Word is sufficient 
to restore through salvation even the most broken life. Some of you can testify to that, that God used his word to save you and to restore your broken life. And so the Bible is, is perfect and produces conversion. Secondly, the Bible is trustworthy and it provides instruction. The Bible is trustworthy and it provides instruction. Notice the second part of verse 7. It says, the testimony of the Lord. There's the name. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Uh, there's the character trait. And then here's the effect, making wise the simple. There's the benefit, the effect. And so the Bible is trustworthy and provides instruction. The testimony of the Lord uh, really is, is, is the idea here is that, that, that it's truth attested to by God himself, that it, it serves as the divine witness. Scripture serves as God's witness to us of who he is and what he has done and what he wants us to, to do and to be. In fact, the Ten Commandments, interestingly, were known by this name. They were referred to as the testimony. Exodus 25, 21, you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I shall give to you. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. He says the testimony of the Lord is sure, or if you have an NIV, it says trustworthy. In other words, it's, it's worthy of our trust. The Word of God is able to be trusted. It's reliable. It provides us an unwavering, unmovable foundation on which to build our lives and eternal destinies. If you read in, a, in theology books, in systematic theology books, you'll, you'll come across a statement like this, that the Bible is the only trustworthy standard of faith and practice. The Bible is the only trustworthy standard of faith and practice. In other words, the Bible is the only trustworthy standard of what we should believe and how we should live our lives. There's no other standard out there in this world that you can trust as to how you should live and what you should believe. It's the more sure word that Peter talked about in 2 Peter 1.16. He said, hey, I saw the transfiguration. I mean, it doesn't, you, you might think it doesn't get any, any better than that, than seeing the glory of Christ revealed on that mountain of transfiguration. He says, guess what? You have something even better, something even more sure, more convincing, and that's the Word of God. He says it makes wise the simple. That word simple there comes from a word meaning to open the door, um, the idea here is that, that you don't know how or when to shut the door of your mind necessarily to false teaching. You, the tendency of our hearts is to be undiscerning and gullible and ignorant. So what, what does the Bible do? It, it, the Bible helps us be able to discern truth from error so we know what to receive and what to reject, what to shut the door to. It gives us wisdom to differentiate between harmful things and, and helpful things. And so when we talk about making wise the simple, we need to understand that wisdom, wisdom is being skilled in the art of godly living. It's not just knowing a bunch of information about the Bible. There's a lot of people that know, I mean, they know the facts about the Bible, but man, they are spiritually dunces because they don't know how to apply it to their everyday life, everyday issues and circumstances and their marriage and their work and their finances and, and all those other things. The point is this, that every aspect of life is talked about, talked about in the Bible. You name the subject, whatever subject there is, it's there. Maybe not directly addressed, but there are principles that apply to every issue, every decision that you face in life. So scripture provides us with principles for 
for, for godly, successful living. And those who follow these principles will become wise and ultimately will be led to salvation. That's what Paul said to Timothy, that, that the Scriptures had, had made him wise, leading him to salvation, 2 Timothy 3.15. On the other hand, those who reject the Word of God prove themselves to be what? What's the opposite of being wise? Being a fool. Someone said this, that the Word of God takes a simple mind with no discernment and makes it skilled in all the issues of life. I hope you see that happening in your life as you're exposed more and more to the Word of God in your own personal quiet time through the the Sunday school classes, the equipping hours, and and the Bible studies, uh, the sermons here, that, that you are becoming more skilled in how to live your life. There's a third statement here that that, uh, that David makes, and that is the Bible is right and produces jubilation. The Bible is right and it produces jubilation. Notice verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Again, you see the name there, the precepts are right. That's the character or the adjective there. And then the, the benefit or the effect is that it rejoices the heart. That phrase, the precepts of the Lord, is talking about specific authoritative orders given to us by God. The NIV calls it statutes, the statutes of the Lord. In other words, these are detailed instructions concerning the practical matters of everyday life. They're they're precepts. For the Jew who was living by the Old Testament, the, the Jew knew exactly what they were to eat, what they were to wear, how they were to keep things clean. So the precepts of the Lord are right. It doesn't mean necessarily that they're correct, even though they are. Uh, they're not wrong. I think what, what this word is, is, is saying here is that, that it means that the word of God is straight as opposed to crooked. In other words, this idea of being right is really linked to the idea of righteousness, right living. It shows us the straight and narrow path of righteousness on which we're to walk. walk. It, it just... It, it, it just Uh, paves the way for us and says, this is the way, walk in it. So there's no need for us to lack direction and purpose like so many people in our world today, and and that is something to rejoice in. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Living a righteous life causes us great joy and happiness. As we walk the path that God lays out for us in His Word, we experience joy and happiness and blessing. The verse that I write out underneath my name whenever I have an opportunity to sign our book, Expository Listening, is Luke eleven twenty eight. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Happy are those who hear the word of God and, and do it, obey it. And see, most people don't realize that it's possible to live a happy life without sinning, without alcohol, without drugs, without hoarding a bunch of material stuff, without having sex uh, outside of marriage. So the Bible helps us to avoid the the many paths that so many people travel down in this world uh, in in their futile attempts to find happiness. And so the psalmist here is showing us the way to true joy, true happiness in life. He, He always went to scripture for help and hope whenever he was discouraged, whenever he was depressed. God's word helped him regain the proper perspective and and consequently regain his joy. 
I love Jeremiah 15, 16. Jeremiah the prophet said, Your words were found and I ate them, and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. Notice the fourth statement here. The Bible is pure and provides direction. The Bible is pure and provides direction. Second part of verse 8. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. He calls the word of God the commandment. And because God loves us, he commands us what to do and and what not to do, and how we respond to these commands is a matter of life and death. I mean, this is a reminder here when he talks about the commandments of the Lord that, that, uh, that, that, that this is non-optional, okay? The Word of God is non-optional. It's not just a book of suggestions or, or good ideas. It's filled with commands that are authoritative and binding, and they are pure, he says. The, the commandments of the Lord are, are, are pure, Literally, they're, they're radiant. That's what the NIV says. They're radiant. It, it, they give off light, making it possible to see clearly where we're going, and it keeps us from stumbling as we, as we walk through this dark world. Psalm 119, 105, thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Notice he says that the commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. It, in other words, it, it lights up our lives. It, it guides us. It drives away the darkness So we can see clearly without distortion. It provides clarity when things are dark and and confusing. And so when things appear blurry at at first, uh, when we look at them in the light of Scripture, they come into clear focus. And so the Word of God, the Bible is pure and provides direction. Number five, the Bible is clean and produces expectation. The Bible is clean and produces expectation. Notice verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The fear of the Lord really describes the effect that the Scriptures produces in those who respond to it. It causes us to have a a reverential awe, a a reverential respect for God. And, and, And really, the purpose of the Bible is to put the fear of God in us. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 10 Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth. And so the word of God could be called the fear of the Lord. It's synonymous with the word of the Lord is the fear of the Lord. And he says it's clean. In other words, it's without deficiency, it's without error, it's without fault or blemish. The Bible is without sin, evil, corruption. It is undefiled. Psalm 12, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace on the earth refined seven times. And notice, because of that, they are enduring forever. They are enduring forever. Pure things don't decay. They last forever. Hopefully you've seen the, the scripture over in, in the, the foyer of the old building there. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says this, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. 
Matthew 5.18, Jesus said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it all is accomplished. That, that smallest letter or stroke literally was a yod in the Hebrew language, which is a little, uh, kind of a little apostrophe. But not even a little apostrophe in God's word will pass away without it being accomplished. Jesus said this in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is so helpful for us who live in a world where truth is supposedly relative, right? It changes from one person's opinion and perception to another person's opinion and perception and from one generation to the next. But the truth of the Bible, on the other hand, is absolute. It's unchanging. Why? Because its source is God who never changes. And so the truth of God doesn't change with the times. It's relevant for every person in every generation. It never gets outdated. It never needs to be updated or edited. Like God, it has always been and will always be. Appreciate Howard Hendricks, the late uh, great professor up at Dallas Theological Seminary. He said this, there are only two things that God is going to take off the planet. One is his word and the other is people. What a secret, what a clue to how to invest your life. Spend your life building his word into the life of people. This is the only thing that's going to outlast you. They are the things that will give you a legacy that will last. Interesting. The only things that will remain after the new heavens and the earth are us, human beings, and the Bible, the word of God. Well, the last statement here that David makes is that the Bible is true and produces consecration. The Bible is true and produces consecration. Notice verse 9, the second half there, the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. The, the, the judgments of the Lord, he, he describes the, 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 the word of God as, as judgments of the Lord. In other words, their verdicts, their decisions of a judge. Uh, uh, really, the, the word of God uh, divinely evaluates our thoughts and our actions. It, it is God's standard for judging the life and eternal destiny of every person. It's, a, it, it's, his, it's his tool for judgment. It's the standard that he uses. And it says that, that it's true. In a world full of lies, God's word is the sole source of truth. And so we can depend on the Bible to help us come to know the truth about everything that really matters in life. And notice he says it's, it's righteous altogether. The judgments of the Lord, they're, they're righteous altogether. The, the Bible produces righteousness in those who embrace its truth. It's designed to, live, to, to cause us to live holy and righteous lives, to, to live right. Now look back over those verses that we've looked at, just three verses, 7, 8, and 9. Does anything there sound familiar with the words perfect, sure, Right, pure, clean, true. Not only are those the attributes of God's word, those are the attributes of God himself. And so all the words that David used here to describe 
God's word also described God. Why? Because they are one in the same. Psalm 138 verse 2 is really an amazing verse. The psalmist says, For you have magnified your word according to your name. In other words, God exalted, magnified the word of God alongside himself. God's word is a reflection of the character of God. And so our view of God's word reflects our view of God. And our view of God reflects our view of God's word. If you have a high view of God, then it follows that you will have a high view of his word. And if you have a high view of his word, then that will also mean that you have a high view of God. When I left seminary, the one thing that was burned into my mind was that I wanted to be a man who had a high view of God and a high view of his word. And that I wanted to be a part of a church that had a high view of God and a high view of his word. And, and, and if we got those two things right, I think everything else will take care of itself. That was David's testimony. He had a high view of God and a high view of his word. And he prized God's word more than anything else in this world, and he submitted his entire life to it. And I want you to see now that, that, that after describing the word of God, this, this wondrous, wonderful word, uh, notice the threefold response that David had to, to God's word. In other words, if this is true about God's word, then this is how we must respond. First of all, he treasured God's word. He treasured God's word. In other words, God's word is valuable. Notice in verse 10, he says, They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. And so David extolled the the value of the scriptures by comparing them to gold, which was the most valuable commodity in the ancient Near East. And the, the writer of Psalm 119, we don't know exactly who it was, But listen to how he says the same thing. Psalm 119, verse 11. um, uh, Excuse me, uh, Psalm 119, verse... I thought it was 11. Yeah, it is. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Verse 14. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. Verse 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Verse 127, therefore I love your commandments above gold, yes, above fine gold. Verse 162, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. You imagine walking somewhere and and, and, and finding in some, some, some place where you were, where you were a bag filled, filled with a million dollars. I mean, you would be like, woo, you'd be so excited, right? Can you believe this, right? You'd be so excited, and guess what? You won the lottery right here. You won the lottery with having a copy of God's Word and, and the Spirit of God in you to understand it and apply it. So he treasured it, number one. Number two, he tasted it. He tasted it. In other words, God's Word is not just valuable, it's enjoyable, It's enjoyable. Notice what he says next. He says, it's sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. 
So he extols the value of the scriptures here by comparing them to honey, which was the sweetest substance that you could, you could have in the ancient Near East. Psalm 119.103 says this, How sweet are your words to my taste, yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And so what David was saying here is that, that meditating on the scriptures, reading the scriptures was a source of great pleasure and, and enrichment. It, it meant more to him than the sweetest thing in life. There was nothing sweeter in life to him than spending time with God and his word. Job said it this way, Job 23, 12, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I've told you the story of... Uh, Jack Wurtzen, who was the president of Word of Life Bible Institute, where I went my first two years of college, and, and uh, he was probably by that time in his 80s, and uh, he would wake up every morning, and he would do his 50 push-ups, and he'd take his golden retriever for a walk, and he'd just come bounding into the cafeteria when we're all sitting there trying to wake up at breakfast as students, and he came up to the mic one, one morning, I'll never forget this, and we're just kind of, like I said, waking up and eating our breakfast, getting ready for class, and he says, okay, kids, young people, we're going to start the NBNP NB Club, and we're all like, what's he up to now? Uh, just this vigorous saints, love the Lord and love the God's word. And, and, and he says, this is it. No Bible, no prayer, no breakfast. And he was serious. He says, listen, I'm not going to have breakfast unless I've read my Bible and pray. And then I'll have breakfast if I've done that. If I don't do that, then I'm not going to have breakfast. And his point was that he treasured the words of God more than his necessary food. And that was a practical way to flesh that out. 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. If you're a healthy Christian, one of the marks is that you'll have an appetite for God's word. You'll have a hunger for God's word. You'll have a desire for God's word. And so David treasured God's word. He tasted God's word, and thirdly, he trusted God's word. In other words, God's word is not only valuable, it's not only enjoyable, God's word is dependable. Notice what he says here at, at, at verse, in verse 11, moreover, by them, by the scriptures, your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. God's word warns us against the suicidal seductions of sin and its devastating consequences. That's what the Word of God does. It warns us. It it tips us off to the lies and the errors of the world. It cautions us against false teachers and false teaching. It alerts us to Satan and, and spiritual warfare, and it does all this to keep us from sinning. You've heard that expression, I'm sure, that this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. There's no other way around it. This book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. And so we're warned by the Scriptures, but also notice the positive side, in keeping them there's great reward. Obedience brings great blessing, great reward, not necessarily temporally, It may be temporal, but it's obviously spiritual here, and I think he's referring to the peace and the rest and the joy and the the happiness that's experienced by those who submit their lives to the Word of God. 
One commentator said this, that there's no substitute for submission to Scripture. Your spiritual health depends on placing the utmost value on the Word of God and obeying it with an eager heart. Is this how you respond to the Word of God, like David? Do you, do you treasure God's Word? I mean, is it, is it truly your, 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 your most precious possession? And if your house was on fire and you only had time to run in and grab one thing, what would you grab? Would you grab your Bible? Do you taste God's Word? Do you, do you spend time in God's Word on a, on a daily basis? And, and do you view it as like, like man, I've got to eat today. Right? I'm not going to try to go without food today. Why, why would I think I could go without reading the Bible today? The bread of life. Do you trust God's word? Do you, do you wholeheartedly believe God's word when, when it warns you that, the, that those warnings are true and I need to heed those warnings? And do you believe that you will be blessed if you obey? Even when it doesn't seem like you're being blessed? In light of David's response to how wonderful God's word is and the wonderful things that it does, it's, it's sad to me to see how so many of us tend to take our Bibles for granted. We forget that there were people throughout the history of the church who literally gave their lives so we could have this book in our language. To them, there was nothing in the world more precious than God's Word. And I think we forget that while most of us here in America have multiple copies of the Scriptures, I was uh, rifling through my uh, bookshelves this morning to find an old Bible that I had, to find an illustration that I had taped in the front. And so most of us, that's true, you have multiple copies of God's Word, and we forget that there are fellow believers in other parts of the world who don't own a copy of the Scriptures. In fact, some have never actually seen a whole Bible. They just have scraps and pages, and they, they pass them around, and hey, you have you know, this section of James this, this week, and you study that, and, then, and I'll swap you with my copy of Psalms, and, and, and that's, all they, that's all they got. And whether they, they do have an entire Bible or just, just a few pages or even a few verses, it's their most prized possession. I think by now you know I love the Puritans and love to read the Puritans and I'm often so convicted by the Puritans and inspired by the, by the Puritans. And one of my favorite books about the Puritans is, is uh, J.I. Packer's Quest for Godliness. If you've never read that book, I would encourage you to, to get it and read it at some time, uh, The Quest for Godliness. And it really just describes the, the theology and the lifestyle of, of the Puritans. And there was one uh, Puritan that uh, Packard just t- talks about uh, in Quest for Godliness. His name is Dr. Thomas Goodwin. And he described an episode during his student days when he went to hear a certain Puritan preacher named Mr. Rogers. That's all we know about him. I don't think it was the same guy that wore the sweater and the little tennis shoes, right? But uh, this Mr. Rogers was, was uh, preaching on the scriptures Uh, And in his sermon, he talked to the congregation about their neglect of the Bible. And so apparently he was really getting after them. 
for not reading the Bible, for neglecting the Word of God. And so in this sermon, he impersonated God as if he was talking to them, and this is what he said. I have trusted you so long with my Bible. You have slighted it. It lies in your houses all covered with dust and cobwebs. You care not to listen to it. Therefore, you shall no longer have my Bible. And he acted like he was carrying away their Bibles from them. Then he impersonated the people, falling down on his knees, crying out and pleading with God, Lord, whatever you do to us, take not your Bible from us. Kill our children, burn our houses Destroy our goods, only spare us your Bible. Don't take away your Bible. Again, he impersonated God's response saying, well, I'll try you now a little bit longer. Here is my Bible for you. I will see how you will use it, whether you will love it more, observe it more, practice it more, and live more according to it. And Goodwin said that the entire congregation was so moved to tears and He himself was so overwhelmed with conviction that he hung on the neck of his horse for 15 minutes before he was able to get up on his horse and ride away. And then Packer makes this comment. He said, this antidote takes us to the very heart of Puritanism. The congregation's reaction shows that Rogers was touching their conscience at its most sensitive point. For Puritanism was, above all else, a Bible movement. To the Puritan, the Bible was in truth the most precious possession that this world affords. His deepest conviction was that reverence for God means reverence for the Scripture and serving God means obeying Scripture. To his mind, therefore, no greater insult could be offered to the Creator than to neglect His written word. And conversely, there could be no truer act of homage to Him than to prize it and pour over it and then to live it out and give it out to others. Packer concludes this, he says, intense veneration for Scripture as the living word of the living God and a devoted concern to know and do all it prescribes was Puritanism's hallmark. And I read that to challenge us that this would be the hallmark of our lives and of our church as well, that we would honor God by prizing His word, and pouring over his word, and living out his word, and giving out his word to others. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word, and what a great reminder today from Psalm 19. It's a verse, uh, a passage of of your word we've looked at in times past, but Lord, we can never uh, be reminded enough of of how foundational your word is uh, to our lives as believers and to the life of this church. And so, Father, we, we know that as we uh, strive to exalt your word, we are ultimately exalting you. And so we don't fear bibliolatry, worshiping the Bible, because we know that the Bible is ultimately a means to an end, and that's to know you and to love you. And so, Lord, we know that's the, the, the greatest commandment is to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, Lord, that is our desire, that as we study your word individually, privately, and corporately together in different settings here at this church, Lord, it's our desire to know Christ more, to reflect him more, and to make him more known 
to those who don't know. And so we ask your help, Lord, as we seek to to, um, give honor to whom honor is due, and that is ultimately to you and your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.